Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the seventh series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the new elite, the meaning of God, the coming economic crash, the transformation of the earth, the mind of humans and aliens, food in hard times, what it means to be a philosopher, the end of the world. And in a special live recording in London in November, we'll be looking at the coming age of the machine. It's a common fantasy. You wake up and there is no one there. Civilization, order, humanity have crumbled. And all that's left is ruins and a post-human future waiting for you to explore. There's a whole new genre of writing, sometimes known as cli-fi, which now runs alongside the rather more familiar sci-fi that creatively explores what this future might look like. This is fiction, and it deals with the total environmental destruction wrought by humans on other humans and on nature. But in some parts of the world, it isn't fiction. There are places that are already post-human, not necessarily on account of climate change, but because of any number of harms that humans have inflicted on ourselves and on our planet. Where are they? What do they look like? And what can we learn from them about the future and about ourselves? Carol Flynn is an author and journalist, and in her highly acclaimed book, Islands of Abandonment, she explores, in the words of the subtitle, life in the post-human landscape. Cal, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. You visited a dozen or so places as part of your travels, some of them entirely post-human, some of them where humans have just about clung on. One of them, perhaps the most iconic place you visit, was the area around Chernobyl, near where the reactor exploded. And people will, I think, naturally assume that this was the most poisoned and desolate of all the places you visited But that wasn't so, was it? Well, at some point, it certainly has been. What I am interested in is the recovery of the zone and what has happened there in the years since 1986. I was there before the invasion, so I must preface everything I say about the zone with that, because since then, the soldiers are thought to have disturbed some of the contaminated ground. Radioactive iodine is really the the type of radioactive element that we as humans are most worried about. It lodges in the thyroid and it causes thyroid cancer. That has a surprisingly quick decay. And so that has is less than a 14th of what it was originally. And similar things have been happening with the different kinds of radioactive particles. Not all of them. Some of them have incredibly long half-lives, but it is a lot less radioactive than it was immediately after the meltdown. Humans are scared of radioactivity, so we have fenced off this large area. We've left Mm -hmm. it to its own devices for quite a long time. And so what we've seen is this incredible rebounding of lots of different species, which are either growing in regions of the zone which are less polluted, contaminated, or they are able to survive where it is more contaminated. That might be larger mammals, they can move in and out of areas that are worst affected, so things like wolves, bears and so on. We've seen a sevenfold rebounding of, of wolves. And then other species are less impacted. And so the the pine trees, which are sensitive to radioactivity, they've sort of died out and birch has come to replace it. So we see a, a bit of a changing of the guard depending on what species are able to thrive. But yes, it certainly feels wild. 
And the larger mammals that have returned to this fenced-off area around Chernobyl, they're not so badly affected by the remaining radiation, is that right? Or is it actually happening to them and they're simply not aware of it? (laughs) I think both. One thing is that they come in and out, so they're perhaps not being affected for long periods of time. Another is that, yes, they probably are being affected, but it might not be enough to stop them being fertile. So they are living, they are producing young. Those young are healthy enough to survive and to also produce their own young. So that's part of the fascinating balance here. You you write at one point, though the radiation does them no good, the benefits of the absence of humans, in fact, far outweigh the harm. There's an interesting kind of tension going on there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a tension throughout with this this idea of the absence of humans because um, some species benefit from our presence and other species don't. We have a lot of familiar species that enjoy living alongside, say, farmland and so on and so forth. But one of the problems is that, especially in in Europe, where it's so densely developed, there are very few places for the animals that don't like to be around humans. And so these are the ones that tend to really benefit when there is an area that is set aside for some reason. Well, I want to look at another area which is connected with conflict, which is Verdun, which seemed to me at least to be one of the most damaged places you visited. What happened at Verdun and why is it so toxic now? Well, Verdun was a very, very long-running battle during First World War. It was incredibly badly affected by shelling. I think it was something like six shells per square metre. So after the war, what you had was this landscape that had suffered 10,000 years of natural erosion within the space of a few years. It was completely denuded. There was a lot of broken trees. It was just really sort of open, raw land. And afterwards, also, it was full of chemical weapons and so on. And the chemical weapons were gathered and they were put in a ditch and they were burnt. So there's a region just outside of Verdun called the Plaza Gaz, and it's essentially a sort of uh, clearing in the woods. It's actually kind of beautiful to see, except it's fenced off with this crazy razor wire. They burnt these chemical weapons, and the heavy metals within these chemical weapons leached into the soil. It's incredibly toxic. large proportion of the soil is arsenic. There's also lead, copper, chromium, all sorts of things. It's really a sort of poisonous soup. So this clearing had lasted for... A long time, people locally had sort of forgotten. I think there'd been a certain level of either amnesia or confusion post the war. And so people started using it for picnics or or there was a sort of woodman's cottage on the edge of it where foresters would go in and have their sandwiches, really unaware of exactly what they were sitting on top of. Exactly, exactly. Really, really very deadly. So I was there because I'm really interested in these plants that can grow in these situations. So these are metal tolerant plants, metallophytes as you might call them. And so the moss, the lichen, the grass that are able to grow there either is because they can shut themselves off to their toxic environments and grow anyway and just not soak up any of the poison. Or it might be if they are metal loving, they suck up the metal and they store it in their bodies. And nobody really knows why they do this, but it's the magical, natural power that they have, which essentially detoxifies the ground around them. And it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, that an area can be that toxic, that deadly, and yet there can still be forms of vegetative life that can survive and even in some instances thrive there. I find that remarkable. I think so. There's something beautiful in that. You know, this this idea that one creature's poison is another creature's <laughs> manna. <laughs> 
have you ever seen salt pans when they uh, they make these thin yes. ponds and after a while they begin to look like pantone palettes because as the water evaporates they have different levels of salt in the water yes. and that means that different bacteria will grow in them and so you get these different very vibrant colors really like a rainbow so it's a really visual example of how different species really do thrive yep. in very very different and yep. strange conditions not all the areas were post-human directly because of war. Ironically, some were post-human because of an uneasy peace. And, and one of them is the no man's land between the Turkish and Greek parts of Cyprus. Tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. There's a, a, a line that cuts through Cyprus that is often referred to as the Green Line. And it's called the Green Line because the plants have started regrowing in it. It goes from east to west across the island. In some places, it's really only a few meters wide. Actually, when it goes through Nicosia, the capital, it is literally like a narrow street. And you could be in one window and almost touch the hands of a person on the other side of it. And then in the more remote areas, it becomes very wide and it can contain entire villages. And so within that, all the buildings that remain in these sort of no man's lands have had their windows removed, their doors removed, the very sort of odd, almost like skeletal buildings. And that was to, to stop people using them as hideouts during the war. They're often battle scarred. Um, and what is also happening is that they have a lot of plants growing up and over them, depending on the climate in that particular part of the island. What has happened there is the UN allowed a, a group to go in and do biodiversity studies all the way along. They chose nine sites and they found incredible results as to the animals that were beginning to move back into these empty spaces. So there is quite a, a famous abandoned and very ruinous airport, which was the old international airport. It has big jets rusting on the runways. It's really very dramatic. There they had barn owls, they had all sorts of lizards and snakes sort of basking out on the tarmac, um, foxes and so on. The animals that survive within this area are actually helping the, the populations beyond the realm mm -hmm. of the no man's land. So there's a, a type of mouflon sheep, which is endemic to the island. It's symbolic, you know, people in Cyprus um, really admire it, but its numbers had dived and it is now really recovering partly because they've sort of taken over this ruinous village in the far west of the island and are now spreading out from there. Mm. So there are post-human landscapes because of war, there are post-human landscapes because of peace, there are post-human landscapes simply because people left and Swona, one of the places you visit, an island off the north coast of Scotland that was simply abandoned in the 1970s with the cattle left to roam. What happened? <laughs> That's right. Um, so it was a brother and sister. They were the last residents of this island. They'd, they'd lived in it all their life. They had to leave in quite a rush. One of them was quite ill. And so they left and let the cows out, basically being like, we'll come back and get them later. And they yes. never really did. <laughs> um, so very, very quickly, these cows got out of hand. It was no longer safe to handle them. You couldn't really herd them in any way because they had become used to really being wild. And so now about 10 generations of these feral cows have passed and um, they really behave very differently to what 
certainly we in the UK are used to, in as much as they behave more like wild deer or maybe wild horses, there's like a king of the cows because a lot of the time is like equal male-female. Uh, so there are a lot of bulls to fight yep. it out. Sometimes there are more bulls than there are females. That causes all sorts of like civil strife. It can make the island a very stressful place to be. It's, yes. it's a small island. And they get by by, um, there's a small freshwater spring that bubbles up in the middle of the island. They eat grass, and in the winter, when the grass is sort of dying back, they have to survive off seaweed, but they seem to do okay. And it's incredibly rare, isn't it, to have feral cattle anywhere, certainly anywhere in Europe. So this is a, a kind of um, a weird evolutionary experiment that's going on there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are a few places, say, I think in Australia, where there are sort of escaped cattle or feral cattle living in Maharashtra in India. But certainly it's unusual that they should be left, especially for this length of time, without mm. being caught. And also that this group have also been studied. There was another famous group on Amsterdam Island, but uh, sadly they were all shot after a few oh, generations. No. I know. <laughs> they were felt to be damaging the natural ecosystem of the island. So what do cattle do when they're not being farmed? And the answer is, well, they're quite wild. They're, they're pretty defensive and they have a very complicated social system. Yeah. One more example before we start pulling out some of the themes through in the book. It's worth emphasising that not all desolation is, is man-made desolation. You visited the island of Montserrat, which was deserted after a volcanic eruption or several eruptions actually in the mid-1990s. Was there anything different going on with the, the rewilding in Montserrat because it was natural, so to speak, rather than man-made? Well... That's a really interesting question, and I would say no. So first of all, the, the rewilding of Montserrat has been incredibly fast, and this is largely because it's in a tropical environment. So that means it's very wet, it's very hot, very fast moving in terms of vegetation particularly. But when we look at how the natural environment reclaims spaces, it is much the same, whether or not that's a volcanic eruption versus tarmacking over something, the same processes come into play. So plants will start to grow. They have a fairly predictable way of taking over a patch of bare ground. And so it starts with the mosses, the lichens, the wild grass, the wild flowers, the annuals, and it starts sort of moving more into the shrubs and the trees and so on if, if the conditions allow. So we see a very similar thing on the volcanic island or in the case of Montserrat, a sort of ash slide because it was pyroclastic flows that they had there and so mm. we we see a similar process happening there as we would in a man-made disaster of another kind which i began to find oddly oddly reassuring which was that the 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 tools to recover the damage that that humans are doing already exist yeah all of these things are already happening all around the world all the time. A lot of the time, unobserved. But yeah, in, in Montserrat particularly, it's been very quick. You see iguanas crawling over the old hotels, the old swimming pools were being taken over by trees and lianas and all sorts of things. That was actually one of the most cinematic experiences. It really was like stepping into a sort of dystopian movie, I think because it was so recent. So we went down into this hotel and they still had bills, they still had leaflets advertising and Easter party with a phone number that 
that one might call. So that was like stepping into a dystopian present. You almost wonder why it hasn't been picked up by film producers who like making dystopian movies. It sounds like a set made for them, doesn't it? I guess so. I mean, one of the, the main practical reasons for that is that it's not necessarily that safe to go in. So there no, are I different <laughs> different zones. Around a half of Montserrat, this Caribbean island is still fenced off and they've divided it. There's zone V, which is the most dangerous area. This is where you're still very much in the path of the flow should the, the volcano rumble back into life. And so I did go into the former capital and it's called Plymouth and it was a very sort of pretty port town. And you can drive around about two, maybe three stories above the original streets because it's that covered in ash. Wow. And so the tops of the buildings are poking through here and there. Wow. But you have to keep the car engine on, you have to keep the doors open, you have to keep the car facing towards the exit, because if it does rumble into life, you've got about 90 seconds to get out of there. So <laughs> I think that's probably why the film crews are not so into it. Uh, yeah, that's a very good reason, yes. You visited lots of other places, but I want to draw out some of the themes that fascinatingly were woven through the book. And the first one, I guess the most obvious, is the resilience of nature. The theme of the rebounding of nature after humans left is absolutely central to the book. What did your travels teach you about the resilience of nature? I think the main takeaway is the sense that there is always an appetite to expand into new areas. So there are all these different species all the time competing for space. And usually that level of competition is very intense. And so when a area is damaged, cleared and so on, there are these opportunistic species that are ready to go at a moment's notice. And there's this rather poetic idea of seed rain, which is that these tiny, tiny seeds and often tiny insects as well are swept up into the atmosphere and are just swirling around up there all the time. And depending on air currents and so on, they will begin to sort of rain back down to earth. And every so often a seed or an insect will land somewhere that's conducive to its survival and it will make a life there or it will try. And so there's some really interesting studies of volcanic islands. So these ones that just sort of bubble up from under the ocean. How long does it take for them to become colonized by other species? And it depends on a lot of factors. One of them is how far away is it from other islands of life. So if it's an island in the middle of the ocean and it's not near anything, it's going to take quite a long time. It wouldn't not be colonized at all because things are going to be floating there. Um, things are going to be sea draining down on it. But it won't be so richly biodiverse as one that would be, let's say, popped up off the coast of Australia or yes. Melanesia. Another thing is, of course, the, the local environment. Is it too cold. Coldness actually really slows things right down. So you can go to Svalbard and uh, there are these amazing Soviet mines, but they are largely as they've been left. It's much harder for species to survive where it's really, really freezing. Same goes for the desert. If there's hardly any water, it will take yep. much longer for them to be taken over. So we get these sort of Goldilocks situations. Montserrat's a great example. It is very badly damaged, but it's not been contaminated exactly by the ash. So it's it's like a blank slate. It doesn't have any soil, but it doesn't have anything sort of holding things back either. And so you also have the amazingly warm, damp conditions. You have a lot of sun. And so that's why, even though the eruptions were at the turn of the millennium, it already feels very wild. It feels like you're walking through a tropical yeah. forest. So if the conditions are there, 
life will return at different paces, but mm-hmm. it is resilient and it will return. That leads on to another really fascinating concept in the book, which is that of waste. A couple of lines in the book really struck me. It's from when you visited the forest near Verdun, and you say, here one feels at once the astonishing force of living in such a vast and endlessly forgiving world, the beauty of it, the blessed relief. If there is a God, he may yet be revealed as a merciful one. And I was reminded of a line from Rowan Williams' essay in which he said something like, God does not do waste, meaning not, I think, that God doesn't like it when we create waste, but that there is no such thing as waste in nature and that everything is used and reused constructively. Is that a feeling you came away with from your travels? Oh, that's really interesting because I think there is, at some level, with these randomising processes, there is waste, depends on how you define it, you know, because for these processes to work, you must throw everything at it. I don't know if you count that as waste or not. If you have millions and millions of seeds raining down on the world all the time and only a tiny fraction of them become plants, do you consider those other seeds to have been wasted? That is certainly part of the process. And so I think that it is a question of definition. I think that's exactly right, because there is that concept of waste, which is something that is not being used for the purposes that it could be used for. But there is also a concept of waste, which is something not being used at all. And it seems to me in that particular example, the millions of seeds that don't go on to germinate and grow are not waste in that latter sense, because they are used to nourish the soil, for example. And so there is this natural usage and recycling going on all the time. Yes, I think so. And these processes sometimes the build-up of their wasteful elements might then produce, as you say, the soil in a new place. I think that the the idea of waste is not necessarily a helpful one, at least from my point of view. And and in fact, I, I began to see it as the opposite, which was for this to work, there has to be constant effort. There has to be this constant clamor and attempts to claim and reclaim land. Mm. And that a lot of the time it will not succeed, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's just that's the process. Mm. A third theme, a very obvious one and a very important one, is the role of humans. At one point you say the absence of humans is often all the stimulus required to start the resurrection. It's very easy for the environmental movement to slip into a kind of misanthropia, as if humans are, are the plague. And you consciously avoid that in the book. Yes, absolutely. There is a very satisfying, reassuring narrative in the idea of we just need fewer humans. You know, like that is simple. And in some ways, you know, the example that I give in a lot of the books almost uh, agrees with that. But there is this corrective. You have to also steer the ship back a bit. This is a very dangerous way of thinking. And this idea of um, misanthropy, it suffuses through certain parts of the environmental movement. This idea of, well, you know, maybe we need to have fewer people. And often this is done with a sort of finger point at, I don't know, populations around the world that conveniently do not include ourselves. I think about this all the time. And I think that what we're doing here is looking more at how can we become better neighbours? What can we do that interrupts other species' lives less often? We have just enormous amounts of farmland all over the world and small tweaks in the way that we farm can have incredibly 
large impacts. In this country, we talk about giving the margins of farmland to allow hedges or, or trees to grow up on the edges of the field. You know, the, those are small things that, that have incredibly large results. What I'm writing about at the moment is the, the way that indigenous groups around the world are able to live in their environment sustainably. And that is why these landscapes that are still in the amazing situation that they are today. The people who live there are as much a part of, I suppose, the ecosystem as any other part of it. I think that what we need to watch is when our role in the ecosystem becomes so dominating, so unsustainable, that it changes the ecosystem itself. And so I think that that we have to be very careful about slipping into these anti-human narratives. And I very much do not want my book to be read in this way. And it's more, how can we reframe it? How can we think of them as being the control subjects in a study on the recovery of nature? You know, we've got these ones that we are rewilding or that we are planting trees and all of this, but we also need to compare it to what nature can achieve on its own. And these examples are telling us that they are worst case scenarios. And yet, you know, what can we learn from the way that they are recovering? And and that leads to a a fourth area, which I guess hovers just gently in the background of pretty much the entire book, which is climate change. And we need to be very careful about this, as indeed you are in the book, because there is a danger that some people hear what we've been talking about and interpret it along the lines of, well, climate change isn't that much to worry about because nature will always ultimately bounce back. That, of course, emphatically isn't the message from the book. What did you learn from your travels and experiences that informed your view of climate change and how we respond? Well, so there's a chapter in the book I talk about um, forest regrowth. This is on abandoned farmland. I mean, this is happening in, in lots of places around the world, very specifically in the former Soviet Union, following the collapse of their collective farming system. A lot of fairly fertile farmland has been left to its own devices, and much of that is in the process of becoming quite dense forest. And it is now the largest man-made carbon sink. One great thing about it is that it's man-made in one sense, we created it by abandoning it, but it's much more naturally formed than, say, a plantation. So this can play a huge role in slowing the speed of climate change, in as much as lots of carbon can be sucked down from the atmosphere by forests, especially on this scale. However, storing carbon in forests and digging it from the ground, where it has been for millennia is a very different prospect. There is a limit to how much forest you can grow on the face of the earth. So what we do need to do very quickly is slow down, ideally stop digging up and releasing more of the carbon that has been stored within the planet itself, because that is a slightly different source and it's certainly very much larger. And we have already as we know, really gone beyond comfortable levels of doing that already. So both of these things are important. We need to to stop the, the releasing and then hope that we can repay for past sins, if you want to think about it in that way, by allowing the forests to grow where possible. Let's conclude by looking at the future. And I want to ask you about faith and the future, simply because towards the end of your book, you say faith in the end is what environmentalism boils down to, faith in the possibility of changing. And then you quote Mother Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, which is a rather famous and very beautiful quote. Do you have faith in the future after what you've seen? It can depend a little bit about what I've most recently read. It can depend a little bit on my own personal mood. In some sense, I think that going and looking at these sites was looking for a rational way to to feel hope, to feel optimism. 
And I did find it. I did find that there are routes out, that there are ways that the planet can recover, and that it is not mad to believe in them and to have some level of faith. And then what it also brought me up against was that at some level, these things have limits, which is we have the capacity to release so much carbon into the atmosphere that the planet cannot recover. We have the skills to release toxic pollutants into the ocean that will, to all intents and purposes, never go. You know, they, they will exist for the rest of our species life. You don't want to willy-nilly chop down a, a small forest, but if you did that, theoretically it can regrow. Whereas if you then chop down the forest and pour asphalt over it, you've made that much harder. It will probably never become exactly what it was before because you have now averted its course in life. It will always have this baked into it. It will become a biodiverse habitat on its own, but it will be a different one. And then as you go up the chain, you might have these places where we have released these, they call them persistent organic pollutants, these incredibly strong toxic chemicals. You release these into, say, a harbour, it will absolutely never be the same again, and very few species are ever going to be able to survive there. And then you might have a, a planet that overheats so much that most species are unable to adapt. And I think that that helps you understand the sort of level of priority, the level of recovery possible. I don't call for blind faith, but I think that idea of rational optimism, that idea of of prioritizing what we're being worried about rather than a sort of general anxiety, that can help us take action to yes. to improve our lot as a planet. Put like that, it reinforces what an extraordinarily, if you like, poised species we are with this remarkable capacity for stewardship and preservation and at the same time balanced with an equally remarkable but rather more terrifying capacity for destruction. That word stewardship is is really interesting because I think that that is one of the things I've begun to feel more uncomfortable around. That, in fact, although yes, we should steward our own resources, we should steward animals that we are working with and own, but that what we also should do is understand the extent to which other animals have their own agendas, other species, including plants, have their own agendas and skills, and to respect that and to give them more space to assert themselves, if that, mm. if that makes sense. And so yep. I think that we can, quote-unquote, rewild a lot of spaces by allowing that to happen. What you do need to do in that situation is then you have to allow what happened to happen. You, you, can't, you can't really yep. have goals. So I understand a lot of the time in in rewilding projects, people want to increase, say, biodiversity, or they want to change the species makeup of that area. If you're going completely hands-off, you can't really have goals for that yeah. area. You just have to let what's happened happen. So it's not stewardship as control, then, is it? It's stewardship almost as facilitation or enabling. Is that fairer? Yeah, I, I think so. And certainly for me, a, a lot of the, the mental reshuffle in writing this book was sort of understanding that maybe, although we are having a big impact on the environment, we are not necessarily in control of all the other species on the planet. And that that is a, an important corrective just to understand and to respect our colleagues in this project that is Planet Earth. The book is called Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape. Carol Finn, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thanks for having me. Next week, I'll be speaking to Penn Vogler about her book, Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain.
And so that's the situation I think we're in the moment. We're eating food that is adulterated in some ways, although legally adulterated. And no one body has the ability to change that. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Daniel Turner, Fiona Hanscom and Chinny MacDonald. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find details of a special live event in London this November, in which we'll be talking about the coming age of the machine with Lord Robert Skidelsky. We hope to see you there. <laughs>